Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, adulting well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So For instance, we can have polls, we can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that, and we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just, uh, that's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you, and I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined as always by your co-host Kevin. And tonight we are interviewing a very old friend, Gabe Moline, who is currently the KQED Arts Senior Editor here in San Francisco and so much more. I mean, I don't even know where to start, but let's start where we normally start and talk a little bit about your growing up. Um, For those that don't know, uh, we are all from the town of Santa Rosa, well, city now, I think, in yeah. terms of size, <laughs> um, and uh, grew up in what was then a very small and very tight-knit punk community, um, and so I'm going to just turn it over and let you talk a little bit about your experience there and, you know, kind of maybe a little bit on the path that brought you to becoming a senior editor at such an amazing public radio station. Uh, sure. I uh, let's see. I was, you know, every once in a while at work, we're made to fill out uh, bios about ourselves, sure. which is an excruciating, awkward experience for anybody. And um, you know, when I think back, when, whenever I'm asked, like, "How did you get your start in journalism?" or like, "How did you learn how to write?" or you know, those types of questions. Um, I mean, basically, 
you learn a lot uh, by being a young punk kid with a lot of energy and like no guidance. You learn a lot really quickly. When did you become a young punk kid? Because I remember being 15 and you were basically a veteran of punk rock and you were the same age. <laughs> For years you had, you had been going to shows at well, that point. Well, you know, I, and if I had had my way with uh, my parents, I probably would have gone to shows even earlier than I, I already did. Um, but I started my own zine when I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in high school and it was called Boy Does High School Ever Suck. And, uh, it, you know, I, I had people tried to call me an editor, like, oh, you're the editor of a little underground magazine. I was like, no, it's not an underground magazine. It's a zine. And I'm not an editor. I'll never be an editor. I didn't want to be known as like a writer or an editor or anything, which is very funny considering my circumstance now. But, um, you know, I had contributors and I had, you know, freelancers essentially, and I Mm -hmm. had my own uh, screwy version of graphic design and layout and all the Xerox machine tricks and everything. You took it seriously. I took it really seriously. And, you know, what actually helped a lot was Maximum Rock and Roll taking it seriously and getting it reviewed in Maximum Rock and Roll, which brought it to a global audience. I started getting letters from all over the country and all around the world, which gave me a lot of pen pals. And when people ask me how I learned how to write, I have to think that having, like, dozens of pen pals at a really formative age had a lot to do with that. And um, something that people say about my writing now is, is that it's very conversational and relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's probably because I learned how to write by writing letters to people. And conversational and relatable is the name of the game when you're talking to a stranger in Massachusetts that you've never met. Right. Um, and journalism is talking to a bunch of strangers that you've never met. You know? you know, so, it's interesting about that now that you say it. It sounds like... You know, you'd get these letters saying, hey, what, what's going on with punk rock over there? What's going on with the music over there? And you'd probably tell them what was going on. And, you, and then later you worked for a magazine where you told the world what was going on with music. And it's almost the same thing. Right, know? right. I mean, you, you've probably got this theme in your podcast uh, by now with all the guests that you've had on it. But nothing prepares you to be an adult like feeling like you'll never be an adult and... <laughs> getting involved with a DIY community and like doing things yourself and doing things in an unofficial fashion or an unpaid fashion or an unacknowledged fashion over and over and over again just because you love it and you believe in it. And then you come out of that and you're like, oh my goodness, I have all these life skills all of a sudden, you know, like from doing a zine to being a journalist, to like putting on shows is like, an event planner, you know, totally. you'd never call yourself an event planner, but you're an event planner. You're working with a lot of different people with a lot of competing needs. You're juggling a ton of money. You're juggling fragile egos sometimes, and you want to create an incredible experience for everyone who's there. That's, that's an event planner. And you so know. you've been doing that since, how, <laughs> again, what age? Because when, did you have, did you book Green Day at your high school? I booked Green Day at my high school, yes. Um, I, it was 1991. What, what high school was that? Piner High School Piner in High School. Santa Rosa, California. And a couple months later, um, also at Santa Rosa High School. Um, Go simply because, you know, simply because they were a great band and we wanted them to play at our high school. We talked the principal into letting us do it. I shoulder tapped at Merv's Little Super on Mendocino Avenue in order to buy a six-pack to pay them <laughs> an entire six-pack of beer for playing at lunchtime at Piner High School. That was their writer? It was a six-pack six of beer? No, they actually, I, that was just me feeling like, I think I wanted to be cool and be like, here's some beer, guys. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've seen I, some videos of that, like grainy YouTube videos oh, yeah. of that, and uh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable <laughs> because you just see there's just a couple of high school kids looking bored, kind of looking it up. I mean, this is like, two years later; they're the biggest band in the world, you know, and you just see these. Very uninterested high school kids. <laughs> right, by right. right. It was w- it was funny because it was 1991. Kerplunk had not yet come out yet, but so most of the kids at school were uninterested and bored. But then there were like kids who would cut school from Montgomery and Santa Rosa mm-hmm. to like come to Piner to see Green Day play at lunch because or, they had that much of a of a or push. kids that had graduated high school that came back to. See Green Day play (laughs) at Piner High School. Um, So I want to roll back to the letters because that was one of my favorite parts of being in a band, Mm. especially in the early 90s, like because there was no internet and there was no – people weren't going to be generally calling you to chat on the phone um, because long distance actually cost money then. Right. Um, So we couldn't Skype or we couldn't, you know, like – web call or whatever the, you know, whatever the new apps are now to, to get free phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, but letters, they were like magical. Like I loved going to our PO box more than anything. Like mm-hmm. it was my favorite thing. I loved packing up packages, sending stickers and patches and seven inches. And I just like, and I definitely am not like one of those, like you kids today kind of guys. Cause I think there's a lot to be said for how bands market now, mm-hmm. but I just feel like like that's some of what I really loved about being in a DIY band and touring and then hearing back from people that you met on tour, you know, um, and I, I think it's really interesting to tie back your, your and I, I am, you know, we've known each other a really long time, but I will honestly say that I'm a fan of your writing and I read your articles and there's, it, having been so familiar with you over the years, like there really is a familiarity in your writing. And it has developed over the years into what it is now. But there's also, like, when I read your articles, I'm like, it's like talking to Gabe. Like, in a really super well-researched, interesting way. Like, he's talking on a topic that he really either understands really well or loves. But either way, it it comes across as you, you know. And I I just wonder, you know, and I'm going to put this out to the universe as well, like, how that feels to people that don't know you. Because I think it's a really interesting sort of, like thought about people's writing you know Mm -hmm. like it it's very familiar to me but i i feel like it would be to anybody thank you um you know they call it uh uh, there's a word for it in writing which is your voice you know um the first job i ever got uh writing was when the publisher and the editor of the sonoma county independent called me into their office one day in 1993 or 1994 and at this point i had been doing um a zine that was not about high school anymore, but about Santa Rosa and the punk scene and my failed love life called uh, Positively Fourth Street. Right. And they called me in and they said, uh, so we wanted to meet with you because we want you to write for uh, our paper. This is like the alternative news weekly in Santa Rosa, like the East Bay Express or the SF Weekly. Um, they said, uh, we, really, we really like your voice and we want you to write for the paper. And I was like, what does my voice have <laughs> to do with it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah do you want, I'm not singing or talking. Right. And they're like, no, like your writing voice. Your, right. And it, it was like one of a hundred things where like there was this thing that was official that I didn't know existed, but people were telling me that I had a knack for. Right. And that's kind of been the story of my career. Totally. It's, it's never condescending. Um, no. And it's it's always kind of letting you in on something in a very friendly way, I feel like. Uh, sometimes when you're, when you write, uh, 
um, you'll say something very casual, like, you know, one of the twins, I forget which one. And it's the same thing I would be thinking as I was reading, because you're talking about like Kardashian twins or something. And you, you talk as if uh, you're, you're just like a friend that's explaining something to you. Well, it's really valuable also in the arts department at KQED. We're basically an online department. It's right. basically, you know, a, a blog, for lack of a better term. It's a lot of online articles and stories and videos. And um, the feeling of a human talking like a human on the Internet is like a foreign feeling now. Yeah. And when that. you discover, like... Uh, That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> when you discover... <laughs> There's humanity yeah. in Gabe's writing. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> but yeah, when you exactly. discover an honest, authentic person who sounds like, who writes like they talk, mm-hmm. um, it's really a rare thing. And, you know, now I'm in a position to be an editor where I'm, like, cultivating that in my employees and freelancers. And um, it's a little strange. I've been the senior editor for two years now, and... Uh, going from being a writer to being an editor, I, you know, I manage five people. I edit more than that. You know, I don't have time really to write that much anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, it's kind of like being a parent or something. Mm-hmm. Like you have this mentory, cultivatey, paternal relationship with all these people, and when they succeed and when they really like knock it out of the park with like an incredible article, I get that like those editor tears, you yeah, know, like, oh, fantastic. they did it, they did it, they did it, totally. you know, it's, it's really, um, it's a different kind of satisfaction, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Well, it, I mean, it's like, when you see someone you've worked with really hard, like, when it finally clicks, right, it's like, yes, like, I did a good job, and they did a good job, and we created this awesome thing. To would write. you say that part of being an adult uh, is realizing that you need to stop searching for father figures and be a father figure? Maybe, um, I was never... uh, Mentors included, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I I still draw inspiration all over the place, and I still... I've had some incredible mentors along the way, Um, uh, but... uh, It's not a line you cross, then. It's just a journey. You're just always going towards a mentor, and you're always mentoring behind you. Yeah, and then now I'm just... Because of the role I'm in at work, I'm... I'm more of a mentor myself. I mean, it's a little weird not having a byline that often. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a little weird. Or, like, the bylines that I do have are, like, tiny little event picks or, you know, due diligence type stuff. Oh, we need to have something about this, so I'll write this really quick. And not really the big, meaty, you know, deep things that take two weeks to put together. So... I want to um, talk a little bit about how you got into punk in the first place because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, growing up in a place like Santa Rosa, which, you know, I mean, I would say at the time, I don't know what it's like up there as much now other than when I visit my parents, which there's a lot of like, it feels like it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of younger businesses and sort of like some of the older stuff has gone, has disappeared, mm-hmm. honestly. But it was a, it was a relatively conservative town. Um, you know, right in the middle of cow country. So, you know, it was not exactly like comfortable being a punk kid there at certain times. I think especially like when I was younger, when I was like 16, 17, there was still a lot of, you know, instances of bottles being thrown out of the back of trucks. Yeah. You know, a lot of getting beat up randomly and called, you know, extremely homophobic names. Right. Um, But, you know, kind of walk us through how you got into it. And then I think one of the things that is really interesting to me, because I've you know, and Joshua touched on this briefly, is you were never like half in. 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I was sort of like the old, one of the older, like at that point, we're only a few years apart in age, but at that point I was like one of the older, like aged kind of punk guys there. You were, like, yeah. you know, I had, I had been in multiple bands and was putting on shows for a long time. And, you know, like all these things that I was watching everybody do like, but when we, when you and I met, I, I think we, in, at least in my side of the story, we clicked pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. And you shared a love for not just the music, but the culture of like DIY and punk that, you know, when I, when I like now I can equate it to guys that come in here to work and they like immediately click into like screen printing. They love it. You know what I mean? Like they they want to just, they, they want that to be their life, yeah. you know? And so how did you arrive there? Because I, I don't know that we ever talked about that backstory. Even when we were kids, it was like all of a sudden Gabe's here. He's my guy, you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know? Um, I think it started with like the metalheads and the goth people at Comstock Junior High okay. who were uh, let me borrow their Subhumans and DRI and MDC tapes, um, uh, the Dead Kennedys. You know, like everyone has their sort of inroads into right. the music. And you know, right off the bat, I loved the uh, energy and the hyperness and the humor, but especially the um, the knowing that the people who made this music cared about like making life better for me, you know, the listener or the world better for society. Or there was, there was a passion behind it that I didn't get from Huey Lewis and the news. Like Like you felt represented. Yeah. Or maybe not even represented, but I knew that it was, I I wanted to do that. And I want, and the more I learned about the punk scene and specifically the Bay area punk scene, the more I realized that, like, that was the place for me and that I just I just wanted to be involved in any way possible that I could. I wanted to go to every single show that I possibly could, you know. <laughs> I started a zine really early. Right. I bugged bands. The first three bands that I interviewed were Green Day, Jawbreaker, and Fugazi yeah. <laughs> when I was 15 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so I just Amazing. was like, I was just Not that. Not surprised. I was just that, like, person who was like, I just want to do it all. Yeah. And um, started a band as quick as I could, uh, put out records as quick as we could by any means necessary. Um, you know, I just, yeah, but the, th- the thing that kept me there was finding like-minded people like yourself and you, Josh, and um, people who, uh, you know, this was like pre-Nirvana and pre-Dookie mm-hmm. and everything. So you could basically be assured that most of the people that you met in that scene weren't doing it for ulterior motives or like external reasons. They were doing it for internal reasons. And, um, uh, you know, I found my people. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, we, there's a lot of photos from the bands I was in where you're somehow framed in the photo. Like, (laughs) Oh, there's Gabe right up front, you know, like every single show, you know? And I, I went through some old photos at my parents' house and I swear I was like, I think like a quarter of these Gabe's somehow in the photo. Like there he is. Like either, you know, ground round was playing with us or they weren't. And then you ended up playing with us, which is always an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, there's a, there's a really sort of interest, interesting story, or I think a really funny story from when we were younger in Santa Rosa, where you used to do these like gorilla shows and they became rather epic and it came to a crescendo with a, with one specific at the post office. <laughs> oh right, right, the post office shows. Yeah. This but, was But this wasn't those weren't the only like guerrilla shows you guys did. I mean, that was, you know, that was the most sort of infamous or famous in the scene. Yeah. 
Um, when I think of the the bands that I've been in, I think the goal of every band has been to like play the stupidest possible show <laughs> imaginable. <laughs> um, I think I was still in high school when Ground Round tried to play in the tunnels underneath downtown Santa Rosa. Right. For those who don't know, there's these large, giant, like 20-foot by 20-foot concrete tunnels that go for two and a half blocks underneath downtown Santa Rosa. They're very cavernous. They're very echoey. And we thought it was the perfect place to rent a generator from A1 Rents and like go down there and play a show. Um, the cut, the, the, a ton of people showed up. Right. Like we didn't imagine that so many people would show up at all. Everyone from Bennett Valley and Rincon Valley yeah. and everyone, everyone showed up. And then the cops showed up and they were like, we don't know what's going on here, but <laughs> can't be good. get a move on. <laughs> and we, we played in Doyle Park instead and then like got busted by the cops at Doyle Park about an hour later. But the, yeah, the post office shows were just like, we all had PO boxes cause yep. we all had zines and we knew that the doors weren't locked at all overnight and that there were working power outlets inside put two and two together and right. have a show um and there were like a, two or three of them that right. happened usually starting at midnight mm-hmm. um one of them ended with somebody taking the flag off the flagpole outside and trying to light it on fire and you know 40 bottles rolling all over the place <laughs> and, um kind of mayhem i think i bailed from that one before the cops came but yeah i mean you know, uh, th- that's partially just to, like, give everybody a good story to talk about right. for the next week. But it's also about, like, getting out of the nightclub system, which kind of ruled in Santa Rosa at the time. You'll remember Hot Spots. Mm-hmm. You'll remember Magnolias. You'll remember, what is it, like, uh, that pool hall on Fifth Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the Ale Works or whatever. You know, it was, like, 21 and up. It was all about making money. It was just, um, you know, so... Instead of, like, sitting around and complaining about it, trying to find your own weird, stupid places to play shows. Well, and that was, I mean, that was the impetus for me to to do things like rent the community center in Sebastopol. Yeah. You know, like, we have nowhere to do an all-ages show. Who's going to, how are we going to do this? Okay, we got to find a place that will let us buy insurance from them and bring in our own PA. Mm. You know, and that was pretty much the prerequisite. That was my entire prerequisite. Yeah. And have all-ages, yeah. you know. It was, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was pretty dark times up there as far as places to play all ages shows until Cafe This showed up. Right. You know, and that, that had its, its own set of problems, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and could be difficult at times, but we did do, you know, two and $3 shows there, which was pretty amazing. And there were tons of incredible shows. I still remember from Cafe This. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then like, let's see what else, uh, getting out of high school and getting out of. Um, I think I wrote for the Alt Weekly there a little bit. Um, I was on tour a lot. I joined Tilt and uh, right. the band based in the East Bay and toured pretty constantly for about three years. Um, joined Mr. T Experience and toured pretty constantly for about two years. Santiago went on tour. Um, and, the, and juggling, like working at the last record store in Santa Rosa, which is a, sort of the amoeba north <laughs> for people who don't know the, the last record store. I worked there for about 14 years on and off. Um, And then it wasn't until about like 2007 that I left the record store and just started working in journalism full time. Yeah. So. But still went back sometimes in the holidays, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Worked the holiday shift. Yeah. I like working the holiday shift. Everyone comes from out of town. I know. Stops by the record store. Like me. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I bet Gabe or Josh are working today. I'm going to head on over. You know? So. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, too, uh, just going back to the connection with your, your writing style and punk, I mean, so you were all in, did a zine, in bands, putting on shows. You know, I mean, really, you paying know, for records that nobody paying, bought, paying for <laughs> putting out your own record. Never. That's another I would, thing. I that's wouldn't know anything that, about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's another thing that prepares you for for real. I mean, when you put out a record, you're like balancing a ton of money. You're working on distribution. You're yeah. working on sales and marketing, and those are also skills that people go to college for. Yeah, it's and serious projects don't no because they don't have to. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. So, you know, we interviewed A.C. Thompson last week. Oh, ProPublica, yeah. Yeah, so is, and that's going to be on... Next, uh, next week. Next week. Next episode. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he dropped... Oh, wait, out, no, but this will be later. Like, the timeline. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You'll hear him before Gabe. <laughs> there you go. Before this interview. But the, the thing that he dropped out of college, mm-hmm. you know, and so he basically got most of his experience totally DIY. I mean, he was still rocking dreadlocks, you know, from like the avail days. Mm-hmm. And, um, he essentially told us that he got most of his know-how about investigative journalism from a private investigator, not even from journalism, wow. you know? And I think that's like, you know, kind of goes along with some of the stuff you were talking about in terms of writing letters to people, you know, and Joshua mentioned this. I think one of the things that we learned early on because we were so like not cool in Santa Rosa to be being punk in Santa Rosa was not cool. It was not a cool, you were not walking around in cool guy land. And so I think one of the things that's, that's really interesting in terms of like your own personal, you know, writing style and growth and, he touched on it, but was is like the accessibility of what you're writing. It doesn't feel like there's a block like a cool guy club going on. Even when you're talking about some of like the coolest shows in town for that particular month or week, like when you were writing more for KQED and some of the shows you went to were like super hot tickets. Mm-hmm. But when you explained the experience, it didn't feel like, oh, there's like a block or a arrogant kind of music wonk kind of bent to this. Right, right. Well, thanks. That's... Um that probably comes from working at a record store too, which might sound like the opposite of what people would expect. But like hmm. working at a record store, I learned pretty quickly not to be a snob right. about music. And I learned pretty quickly not to be condescending and cooler than thou. Um, it was really strange when the movie High Fidelity came out because for the next two years, people would come to the store and expect us to be jerks. Right. <laughs> <And> it's <laughs> like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're like the other store. Like, yeah. we're not that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a combination of that. And then it's also a combination of just finding like the interesting story. Like, um, soon after I came to KQED, Green Day played at Gilman for the first time in 21 years. And yeah, you could write a review of that that was like, oh, this was so awesome. I got to go. It was really amazing. And you didn't. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think a review should ever make someone feel, uh, like stupid for not knowing about something or right. feel dumb for not going to something. So the story there is like, here's a band that was 86th from Gilman for, you know, yeah. pretty understandable reasons. Totally. And then 21 years later, like they change their mind and say, okay, you can play here. And so getting into some of the reasons for that and the kind of scene politics behind it. Mm-hmm. And the, I thought it was a really in, amazing story of reconciliation in a way, even though there was a lot of chatter around it and it was when some boycott idea was going right. on. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, it was interesting to me because Gilman was like, I f- 
I felt still enforcing the spirit of that rule, but not the letter of it. Right. Right. You know. Right. 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 Well, it's kind of hard too. Like, I mean, Jawbreaker just played there. Yeah. And they just did totally skipped any. I don't even know if they had a membership meeting about it. To tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the rule I believe previously was if you had ever been on a if you had label. ever been on <laughs> ever. a major label. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure allowed. I don't know if Jesse Townley listens to the podcast but i'm sure he'll correct me on the exact wording of that rule because right. he, he has on the internet a couple of times <laughs> when i get a little wild with it yeah but it's you know it's uh it's interesting to me that when a band wants to come that kind of grew up there you know cut their teeth there that was their home they want to come back and play to benefit other people i would say the answer should be yes right but that's you know, I don't go to membership meetings either, so I don't get a vote. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, um, so you basically you you've pretty consistently lived. I know you took a small break and moved elsewhere, you know, for a short time uh, to Portland, but you pretty right. consistently lived in Santa Rosa most of your life. Yeah, I never want to move. Yeah, <laughs> it's my commute is bad. Yeah, you know, it's at at its best, it's an hour and a half each way. Right, I'm sure. Um, and parking is hard, and you know mm-hmm. the gas and the toll are expensive. But Santa Rosa is, you know, I can't figure out if I love it because it's familiar or if it's familiar because I love it. Um, uh, but I think it's a really, really incredible place where, you know, it's like a microcosm of America. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock used it for Shadow right. of a Doubt because it was like the quintessential small town. Totally. Now it's like the quintessential fucked up, festering, weird suburb that can't figure out if it's a big city or a small right. town. And like there's all this weird lingering racism and like economic instability and like yeah. kowtowing to big box stores, but like pretending to say that you have a downtown. And like that's the story of so many cities across America it right is. now. And so even though it's wounded, I still think that it is like the quintessential American city. You still have its back. And I think there's been a theme throughout your music and your writing of kind of sticking things out about not going, oh, man, my town sucks now. I'm going to go to a cooler town. But sticking around and trying to make your own town cool. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that was, um, you know, in the early 90s when I was in Tilt, uh, I could have easily moved to the East Bay and... Um, a lot of the bands I loved were from the East Bay and there was so much more action and parties and house shows and things happening in the East Bay. And, um, yeah, I never wanted to move. I, it right. always felt like the right thing to do to create your own scene where you were instead of jumping ship to another scene. I mean, you could think of it as in, from a gentrification standpoint, like if too many people move to the cool city, then it becomes not cool anymore, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then the city that you moved away from is missing your energy. And That's true. So I want to I want to kind of pivot a little bit because you know we all all of us that are from there and you know grew up there went through a lot the last couple of years mm-hmm. um, with the fires and you you know you wrote a lot for KQED and spoke a lot on KQED radio about what was going on up there and. I think it had different effects on different people, obviously, because everybody processes things differently. And, you know, my personal reaction was to be a go-getter and get as much stuff up there as I could that made sense in terms of, like, getting supplies to the people that I loved. 
um, and driving some of them up myself and making sure I stopped to see people that needed a hug and, mm-hmm. you know, did what I could, you know, essentially, and almost had to drag my father out of there kicking and screaming when they were six blocks from the, <laughs> from the fire, wow. you know? And, wow. and I, it was, I, the way I found out about it was I actually woke up in the middle of the night and I lived in Marin, I lived in Marin mm-hmm. and I could smell smoke. Right. And I was like, is there a fire on Tam? You know, like I thought for sure, like our neighborhood was going down. Like it was that strong, that quickly. And um, and I flipped on the news to see what was going on. And I'm like, my fucking hometown is burning to the ground right now. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I, obviously I don't want to make this too heavy, but I think it's important to talk about because I too love Santa Rosa. I love that place. And, you know, my parents still live there. I go up and see them as much as I can. And um, it holds memories for me that, would never be able to be replicated or what I want them to be. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you wrote really eloquently about the pain and going to see, especially, you know, places where you grew up that were no longer there. Right. Um, so, you know, as much as you feel like it, I'd love to just hear a little bit about how you're feeling now, you know, you know, a couple of years removed and yeah, it, um, it feels like, uh, you know, I didn't jump into like journalist mode right. when it happened. No, and when I think about the fire, that's actually what I think about first. All the hundred percent of the time is like, why didn't I leave my house and like drive up to Fountain Grove and start like reporting for the media outlet that I hmm. work for? Right. The reason I didn't is because my heart was breaking because yeah. like I was worried for my dad who the fire stopped four houses away from his house. <sighs> I was worried for all the people that I knew who lived up in that quadrant of Santa Rosa. Northwest Santa Rosa, which got hit the hardest, is where I grew up in Larkfield right. and Wikiup. And I went to Mark West Elementary and Comstock Junior High. Um, so I, th- I was just sh- like sh- shell-shocked, <laughs> you know, I totally. guess. I didn't know what to do. Like, I just didn't know what to do. And even the next day, I was just like, and like, I called and talked to Michael Krasny for a while on forum. I talked to other reporters, letting them know, like, the lay of the land. They don't know the difference between Journey's End and Fountain right. Grove. And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Fountain Grove is all where all the movers and shakers live. And right. Journey's End is a mobile home park right down the street. And, you know. Right. Um, so I was kind of a consultant in a way. Um, and then I was on Here and Now with Robin Young. And right. I was on, uh, I think, The Takeaway with WNYC and... Uh, writing and, um, you know, we walked around and gave out uh, uh, smoke masks and 95 masks. And, um, yeah, I I guess when I think about it now, I just wish that I had maybe done more. (laughs) And that's sort of like what everybody says when a loved one dies, right? (laughs) It was sort of like a loved one dying for me. You know, I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm a member of KQD and I'm just like a crazy avid listener, like – commute both ways nonstop. Mm-hmm. I even jokingly put up, you know, for the love of all things good, please make your donation so this pledge drive stops. Because yeah. for some reason my my pledge free stream went to spam this time, <laughs> you know, and I was so bummed. Um, and uh, so I didn't notice it until like today. Um, but, uh, you know, I so I heard a lot of the, the you know, your interviews. Krasny is one of my favorites. I love Forum. So, mm-hmm. um, um, but I think for somebody that, that grew up there, has family there, has really, really incredibly deep ties to that community still, having somebody up there on the inside that could eloquently, like, convey what was going on, 
was really important, you know, and for me, you know, it's easy to say, like, I, I honestly, you know, I, I wish we would have done more and, you know, and that's coming from a situation where myself and my logistics team and the people at the other businesses that helped sent probably like 30 trucks of stuff up there. Right. You know what I mean? And even then you're like, why didn't we do more? Right. There's always more to do. But I think, so from an outsider's perspective, I I think it's important to point out, like having sort of a voice on the inside that you trust is really important in those situations. And, you know, I, like I could not, I, I would try to take breaks from listening to reporting on it as much as I could, but I also wanted to know what the hell was going on. You know, my parents are old, you know, older. I mean, my mom will get mad for me saying that, but you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're up there and they, they're in Hidden Valley and two of their friends, like within a few blocks of them lost their houses. And so it was really frightening. It was really scary. And I felt like every time I checked social media, I had another friend whose house was gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it was like that, you know, it was like one minute it was there, the next minute it was gone. One minute they were like having dinner, the next minute they were hiding in their pool. You know, to try yeah. not to, to avoid being killed right. or running because they had an electric garage door and couldn't get their cars out. Yeah. You know, and so I, I'm I'm kind of, you know, on a personal note, I'm grateful you didn't go into full reporter mode that you were more like, OK, this is what's happening and like informing the reporters. So they were getting the story right. Yeah. Because I, I don't even know if it would have been possible with that much panic and fear going on if you could have even like done that. Really? Right. I right. mean, let's be real. Right. You know, this is like, these are the moments in our lives that are like, where we don't often have the opportunity to like take a breath and be present because it's so overwhelming. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the fact that you were there like telling, and every time I'd hear you on the radio, I'm like, oh, that's game. Okay, he's going to tell us really what's going on here. (laughs) Well, this is good. You know, like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, crap, there's some more bad news from Santa Rosa. You know, I got all the bad news on, on, uh, you know, channel two. You know, I didn't, I didn't need to hear it again on KQED. So. Well, it was especially funny for me because I had just flown in from Washington, D.C. Oh, really? The night that the fire hit, I was uh, driving home from the Oakland airport. Oh. Flying back from Washington, D.C. I went to Washington, D.C. because, um, I was nominated for the Online Journalism Awards. Right. This is like a big nationwide awards thing. We were up against the New York Times and the Boston Globe. And then there was my essay about the ghost ship fire mm. <laughs> in oh. Oakland uh, called It Could Have Been Any One of Us, which right. was sort of a, a peon to underground spaces and the yeah. importance of all of them. That was a great piece, by the way. And again, the way you write is so inviting and, and so not elitist that it was a good way for me to go show that article to other people and say, this is what I'm talking about. This is like, we used to be in places like this and this is why it was special. And this is why it was magical. And this is why it's okay for me to, to say like, I'm sad that we're losing these spaces, even though they're dangerous. Right. Like you put all of everyone else was vilifying. Yeah. 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 You put that into words really well. Thanks. Mm -hmm. When I was in Washington, DC, I looked up Ian Mackay and went to the discord house and spent like two and a half hours with him. Nice. And I got to tell him. Does everybody on this podcast hang out with Ian except me? I Is that like what every I running theme? I do not. I do not. <laughs> I, I get handwritten thank you notes <laughs> once every five or six Discord purchases from him. Yeah. Otherwise, it comes from the other people working. <laughs> well, I wanted to. Um, I just emailed him out of the blue the night before I left and um, reminded him that I uh, interviewed his band a long time ago. I'm sure he gets these people all the time. But he said, yeah, sure, come on by. And I got to tell him, like, hey, Ian, you know, 
1991, like I was a 15-year-old fucked-up kid, and you had no business to say yes to me when I approached you backstage at the Phoenix Theater wanting to interview your band. But you gave me the time of day, and you opened way up, and you like got me to talk to all the other guys in the band. And Hell yeah. like, it was encouragement, and it was support. Yeah. And it, it told me implicitly that like I could do this. And I've since interviewed hundreds of bands, you yeah. know, and, and um, it was neat to be able to tell them that, like, I'm here in Washington, D.C., like, up for this major national award, yeah. pretty much because of you, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or in part because of you. So thank you. Yeah. You know, it was really great. How to did you react to that? Just um, out of curiosity. I, I, I don't know. You know, uh, just like, oh, well, yeah, of course, no problem. Like, yeah. why wouldn't I? You know, he said, um, he said people, people uh, like meet me and they think I'm going to be a mean guy <laughs> or like tell them how to live or something. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a mean guy, am I? <laughs> I'm like, no, you're not. Or <laughs> like, with Ian McKay wondering if he's a mean guy yeah. or not. Well. But anyway, so after that Washington, D.C. trip, I was driving home at like midnight and I could smell smoke coming over the Richmond Bridge. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed up all night, you know, just getting, you know, we left because when we heard the coffee park was burning, we were like, all bets are off. You yeah. know, if Coffee Park is burning. So um, you're, but you're down by. We live downtown. We were fine. Like Luther Burbank area? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. So just to be clear, Kevin, you mobilized 30 trucks of supplies. Gabe, you did all the stuff you did. I did drop off some cat food to okay. a drop off location for the victims of the fire. All right. Fair Good enough. So equal. <laughs> <laughs> so. <clears throat> You, you know, obviously this is the Adulting Well podcast. You are married and you have a daughter. Yeah, I'm incredibly middle class. You yeah. Know? yeah. I own a house. Yeah. I have a daughter. I'm married. Well. I have two cars. <laughs> you know? well, I think you have to have two cars if you're commuting to the Well, city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's a choice at this point unless you do the, the secret parking job that I'm going to tell you about after the show. Ooh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so... Talk a little bit about about uh, being a being a parent because I know you and your daughter have a really tight relationship. I kind of follow you guys on social media, mm-hmm. you know, and because Caitlin and I, my my ten year old and I are very close mm-hmm. and have a very similar sort of like fun loving relationship. You know, to t- talk about. I mean, I know for me, I draw a lot of inspiration from her, and I can tell by watching you that that is the case as well. You guys are like best pals. I totally draw a lot of inspiration from her. Like she. Um you know, what's that Crosby, Stills, and Nash song? Like, teach your children well, but then the third verse is teach your parents well. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Lena is really teaching me well. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, part of it is just seeing the world through a different set of eyes. Totally. But, um, you know, now she's nine. She's forming her own brain and her own personality and her own presence. And I actually am learning new things from her, yeah. you know, legitimately. Um, just about... Every weekend, I try to take her to either San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley or whatever to see a movie or see a play or go on a hike or, you know, she's... And when she was younger, I dragged her to... Oh, I remember. Like, I saw her. Jello Biafra shows yeah. and ceremony shows <laughs> and <laughs> Outside Lands and Treasure Island Music Festival, you I, know. I see you guys, pictures of you guys going to all these places, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be that kind of dad. Why? <laughs> That's not That's true. so much work. I, yeah. say, I said that, too, and I'm, like, in swim lessons with my younger child and, you know, like. Just put the VR helmet on its head and yeah. <laughs> go about your day, you know. We go everywhere. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, I, I probably felt the same way at a certain point. <laughs> yeah. you know? I probably was like, well, I, you know, when we had a kid, I was like, all I have to do is like make sure it doesn't die. Yeah, <laughs> just keep it alive. Totally. And then like that's the baseline of the, success. Yeah. And you know, the, I think mostly what happened is you get bored, hmm. and you get like mind-numbingly bored with a small child, and you're like, we have to do something. I don't even care what it is. Let's drive two hours to ride a little choo-choo train around in a circle for twenty minutes and totally. drive home and like. So then you just basically made a buddy that you can go hang out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that yeah. is like nonstop energy and <laughs> and uh, wants is inquisitive about everything in the world, which is you know. But it's I will say like being a former uh, you know punk rocker and trying to raise your child ethically in a world that is like. Um, mega woke all around you at all times. Right. Like, you know, she'll come home, uh, uh, you know, talking about racial justice and she'll come home <laughs> talking great. about like the friend at her school who thinks that she wants to be a boy instead. And, she, you know, it's like, wow. Wow. Yeah. Like no amount of like preparation in the punk scene can prepare you for like when you're in charge of a small child. But that's fantastic. Wrestling with a lot of these issues, which yeah. were like, verboten and taboo right and we're right. only talked about in the punk scene right yeah. you know and so that means you did a good job being a punk right you actually the world is different now the world is different now yeah i mean like part of the part of the great thing at kqed is like is a lot of the goals that we tried to achieve in the punk scene you know put in practice writ large you know like right. i work with a really diverse team we report on issue like but this week we reported on uh, the corporate invasion of Slims and the Great American Music Hall because Golden mm. Voice is booking those places now. Right. And they just laid off three people I that have been that. working there for a really long time. Yeah. That's mm. exactly the sort of thing that, like, we would get into, like, you know, arguments in the letters yeah. section of Maximum Rock and Roll. But it's, like, legitimate news now. Yeah. You know? As well it should be. Um, you know, so, the, you know, at KQED we... We do report on a lot of LGBT issues. We report on a lot of, you know, sort of inequality and income inequality. And Well, I think um, the, the important thing a is... A lot of, the, like I said, a lot of the things we talked about on the punk scene. So you represent largely unrepresented people in stories. Try to, yeah. Well, so something that strikes me, I get, I'm, as Joshua knows, we've talked about here, I'm a bit of a, I get a little upset. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good... I'm not a good um, social media citizen, per se. Like, I'm not one of those guys that just avoids the fight. He comments with the Nazis all the time. Oh, you do? So, yeah. Kevin. I know. I know. You can't argue with crazy. Um, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the extension of Engage on, on social right, media. Right, right. You know? <laughs> Shut up and play. You're still, yeah. you're, you're still arguing with that heckler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, but I think one of the things that really gets missed, um, especially about public radio and um, – PBS in general, but I think NPR even more, you know, and, and I know KQED is an affiliate to NPR Mm -hmm. and is that people are like, Oh my God, it's so lefty. Like they get so mad. Like it's, they only report on the left side of things. And I'm like, well, that's not really true. If you actually listen to the news part of it, it's very like, like I, most mornings I get a pretty solid interview with somebody in the Trump administration or some a Republican congressman or senator. Right. You know, if I'm listening to the actual NPR news feed on the way in, 
they're like they're pretty well balanced as far as who they're interviewing when they're talking about topics. And they're not any easier on the Democrats when they come on. Right. Like they, they ask some pretty pointed questions, you know, mm-hmm. and um, well, you know, part of it for KQED, I think, is also the the environment in which you live. Like we live in a very left leaning part of the world. Definitely. Um, but I don't think that the thing that I get into arguments about with people about reporting is and this happened with AC coming on the show a little bit because people were like this, you know. Why would you interview that guy? It's, he's all biased and all this stuff. And against yeah. Nazis, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> there's shit. Because there is two sides yeah. to Nazis. I definitely anyway, biased against. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go down that path okay, right now. Yeah. Anyway, um, but the the thing for me is like that doesn't make the facts not the facts. Like so, he can't be Superman and reporting on every single injustice in the entire world. He's got the things that interest him, as does the reporters at KQED. Like if you're doing investigative reporting and you're doing an investigative piece, you're going to investigate a topic that, one, you find interesting enough to dig into. Right. Two, then you're going to report the facts that you find. Right. Not make some stuff up to make it a two-sided issue. Right. You know, and I, I think the thing that I love so much about public radio is that regardless of what people think is going on, the facts are reported. And the facts are reported even when it's in contrast with what maybe the reporter would like the facts to be. Mm-hmm. Like, this is actually what happened. And I've heard a lot lately about, you know, like, around economic issues, you know, whether it's, you know, listening to Marketplace or any of the other stuff. Like, they're, the the reporters are like, yeah, you know, the economy's doing good. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you can't really argue it. Even if you don't like Trump, you can hate him all you want. But, you know, things are good right now, you know. And I, I think that's the, the thing is, like, because so much of the, the reporting is is from a standpoint of fact – People don't like it, so they label it lefty. Well, it wasn't Colbert who said reality has a left-wing bias? Apparently, yes. I mean, that's totally true. If you just lay your cards on the table, they're wrong. So (laughs) I'm going a very roundabout way to get to something here, by the way. Okay. And I think think it's – I think when I – you know, and I – it's obviously different for you as an editor. But I I will say this. From your earliest zines to your most recent articles, you – reported on or you wrote about things that were of interest to you and you wrote about them in a way that was truthful you know or is truthful and but also kind of touched upon the things that we were talking about earlier left the entry point pretty easy for people that didn't fully understand the music or the scene or the whatever it was um, that you're reporting on and I think that you know, one, I commend you for that. Two, I, I just think it's so rare now that, like, it's not – it should be the norm. Like, you go out, you see a band, and you, like, talk about, like, the experience, you know? And I guess why do you think that's so rare now? Why is it – why has everything got to be such a, you know, excuse my French, <laughs> fucking opinion piece? <laughs> um, you know, people click on opinion pieces more than they click on factual pieces right uh people click on rants people really click on bad reviews people really click on love those one stars um, you know if you're accusing anything of being racist or sexist you're gonna get four times the traffic right Um, you're gonna and you know we talk about page views all the time at kqed yeah um and it's a absurd metric to uh, allow to dictate your content Mm -hmm. but it can inform it a little bit right you know um, there's a whole lot of other metrics that we use, and there are there's sort of a, 
a, a golf handicap that we give to certain coverage. You know, right. no one's going to read about dance. We know we know that. <laughs> no one's going to read about uh, you know visual art or theater as much as they're going to want to read about like Beyonce being snubbed at the Grammys. Right. So you know, we look at our numbers, and of course, the Beyonce post is doing gangbusters and yeah. these other posts about like a small play written by a, a girl who grew up in Chinatown has got like you know a couple hundred views right but but that's okay yeah like that, well and it's also a couple I, hundred views she didn't have when she woke up in the morning right yeah. mm-hmm. and those couple hundred people are really really grateful that we do it yeah. you know that's part of our mission um, so I'm lucky that we that I don't work at like a BuzzFeed or a Vox or whatever where right. clicks are like king yeah um, which is really really helpful um, going well, back to like a liberal bias or a left slant or something. You know, after Trump was elected, we had a lot of conversations about, like, how do we deal with this? Right. <laughs> and especially in the arts department, how mm-hmm. do we deal with it? We're the KQED arts and culture. So right. we're writing about things that are inherently subjective. Like, we can't, you can't just be fact-based right. about, you know, when mm-hmm. you're reviewing a performance or when you're yeah. profiling a band or something. Um, and so how could we deal with... Trump being president in like just a fact-based way. We it would we would like be breaking everything that we normally did in right. covering arts. Um, but it was really heartening talking to the higher ups at KQED about that. Right. And about the idea that like we had to give equal time to the other side, be it Republicans or be it Nazis apparently, you know. Yeah. And they said in no uncertain terms, like, don't create a warped reality if there isn't an equal and opposite other side. Right. Don't don't like find the one person who's making art about Trump and like do a big feature on him. Right. So as an experiment, we found the one guy in the Bay Area who was doing art about Trump mm-hmm. and we did a sh- small profile on him. And uh, I felt really weird about it, but um, it was something that we decided to do um, as part of a, we did a long series, the first hundred days of Trump's presidency. We did a hundred days of profiling artists and how they were reacting to and resisting this new administration. So he was one of them. Um, And uh, then a few months later, we saw him in a photo at those like neo-Nazi you know, quote unquote, free right. speech rallies mm-hmm. at UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. My heart sunk. Right. I was like, why did we do this? Mm-hmm. Like, why did we create? Why, why did we create another side when really it's just an outlier? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like in any statistics class, you'd throw that yeah. out as like right. the junk number. Right. And like the one climate change denier scientist or whatever. Right. Yeah. And you know, looking back, we should have done that. Well, you know, it happens. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's a fair experiment to do too, especially in the Bay Area. Oh yeah, yeah. so we're, we're, <laughs> we're <laughs> Joshua likes to be the producer. Yeah. I feel like we could do this for another couple of hours. So we could, um, but I like I, I really want to thank you for for coming on. And you know, we covered a lot of topics, and um, you know, and I'm really just glad to have you. I you know I I we've known each other a really long time, through a lot of ups and downs, and you know you've been. Uh, more than a solid friend, even when I've been not the best on my end. So, you know, I want to say I appreciate that as well on a personal note. Well, thanks. I'm sure there's a vice versa involved with myself. (laughs) With both of you, you know, I was nervous coming here because I've known you for so long. I can't be anything but honest with you guys. Well, that's that's the best part about this show is we we draw it out of people anyway, and we're 
but we're 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 happy to have you and uh and we will this will be posted in a couple of weeks so it's just we keep interviewing all these people that do all this great stuff and i'm just feeling like <laughs> i don't actually help enough oh come on you know what i mean come on this is <laughs> this isn't the adulting Gabe, Sad podcast. It's wonderful having you on. Uh, <laughs> please come on again sometime. Uh, I feel like, yeah, we could have a whole other episode totally. of talking to you easily. Well, and I'm, you know, just as a side note, um, I'm going to reach out to Manny's and see if we can do a live event with a bunch of people we like at some point. Down, oh, cool. Down in the mission and do like throw some topics out there. Yeah. Awesome. I'm in. All right. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Right see you next week. No, I never give you a break. But I'm a drama, but you're a new type of bad. Damn it, you're a bunch of you doing on top of my kids.